We are in John chapter 2, and so let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to that passage, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we invite you to, to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you or near you, page 887. In this section, we, we have another one of those uh, passages, uh, like last week, but also like we will be facing a number of times as we go through John, that if you have uh, any church background or some church background, then some of these passages are going to be familiar to you. And so... They're familiar to me as well. My prayer has been, and I encourage you to uh, pray this as well, that God will illumine our hearts, not with new truths, because the truth has always been there, but with new insights in these passages so that we not get comfortable and think, oh yeah, I, I know about this one, but rather ask God to, uh, to throw new light for us in this portion of his word. We're going to pick up with the 12th verse, just by way of a, a little geographical context. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together.
Lord, please teach us today. Teach us not just information, but teach us of yourself. Will you cause us to know you better so that we can love you better and, and serve you better? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A couple of geographical things here as we begin and, and, and look at the account it's itself. Uh, verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Down and up. That is uh, the geography there. The wedding uh, was in Cana, up in the hill country. And Capernaum was down on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they literally went down. But then it talks about him going up to Jerusalem. I remember when we uh, went to Israel and... Uh, uh, Mark was sharing with us from various psalms uh, at, at different times. And uh, in, in, at one point, we are uh, in the bus churning, just, just chugging up this long ascent up to Jerusalem. And he shared with us about uh, from one of the, the psalms of ascent and, and how they would, they would sing those as they went up to Jerusalem. Now, why, why were they going up to Jerusalem at this point? Well, uh, it was Passover. And every male Jew from age 12 on up was expected to attend Passover at Jerusalem. And here's what would take place. You would have the initial sacrifice of uh, the lambs for the Passover meal, the meal itself, and that was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was seven days long. During those days, many animals were uh, sacrificed, were killed, and uh, so that's, that's why you have the, the different kind, you, the oxen and the, the sheep and, and the pigeons and so on that were sold in the temple court. Verse 14, it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Um, did anybody go to a, a movie this weekend? Anybody go to a movie this weekend? few of you went to movies this weekend? Well, if you're anything like me, one of the things that uh, you think about when you go to a, a movie is, I can't believe I'm paying like $19 for this popcorn here <laughs> and another $18 for, for this drink that is like bigger than my stomach, you know? <laughs> Which, by the way, please, I'm pleading with you when you go out the door today, 
don't everyone tell me how you get around that, okay? I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear all those stories, okay? But that's kind of the, yeah, I know, you're all going, yeah, you know. Some of you have it in your coats here today, too, I suspect, so. Well, uh, here's the thing. I, the, the, the reason it irritates me is that they've got you over a barrel there. And they, they put up signs that are rules for those of you that may have consciences. <laughs> and so then if you want to eat or drink anything, you've got to pay their prices. That's, that's kind of what was going on here in a very uh, lightweight way. But um, so they're going to they're gonna do sacrifices. And you had the option of bringing your own animals. But for many of them, that was difficult. It was a, you know, a long trip and so on. But not only that, not only was it a, a challenge just to bring them there, but the priest had to approve your animal. And most commentators talk about how there seemed to be some, let's use a, a, a modern-day word, collusion between the, the money changers and the ones that sold animals and, and the priests to where animals were often rejected. And so if you brought your own, then not only did you go through all that hassle, but you end up having to buy one anyway and buy it at their price. That's what was going on here. So, so most people just decided, I'll, I'll just save, save the trouble of trying to bring my own animal and uh, I'll just buy one there. Then there was uh, the, the second kind of business was the, the, by the way, some of them just... For an example, uh, they say that uh, they might have charged $4 for a pair of doves that were worth a nickel. So that shows you what, what kind of a profit uh, they were making. The second kind of business that uh, went on there that was a ripoff as well was the money changers. If you've traveled overseas, you know this feeling too. Uh, every man had to pay the annual temple tribute of a half shekel. It had to be in Jewish coin. And so if they traveled and they didn't uh, have Jewish coin, they would have to uh, turn in their foreign currency and purchase it again at a profit for those who were changing the money, not just exchanging, not just selling the money for what it was worth. So that's the kind of thing that they walked into in the temple. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house 
a house of trade. You recognize that phrase, my father's house? From when he was a boy, 12 years old, and went to the temple and talked about how appropriate that was to be in his father's house. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we've, we have here recorded two reactions uh, to Jesus. I'm sure there were many reactions, but there are two of them recorded here. The first is from the disciples. And if you can imagine, some of them had been with Jesus only a few days. They had seen this wonderful, amazing uh, miracle of changing the water into wine. They go to their first Passover together. He doesn't say a word, but proceeds to destroy the scene in front of him. Imagine what they, they must have been feeling at that moment. And one or more of them evidently remembered from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Here applying it to him. Something was consuming, something was driving this man. And whoever said this and, and, and remembered it we're saying it's, it's about this place, this house. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now I want you to notice here, at least what's recorded, no one tried to stop Jesus. No one according to what's recorded, even said a word against him. There was something going on here. They just saw him drive out that which was an abuse of those who came to worship. The other thing I want you to notice is that, that no one's accusing him of hurting, hurting anybody. Doesn't say he whipped the people. No, no one's even accusing him of hurting the animals. Some feel like that's why the, uh, the, the pigeons thing was a little bit separate, that you couldn't really drive them out. He just said, get them out of here. And so that wasn't the issue. The only question is, where'd you get the authority to do what you just did? Now, the, the Jews were used to having some kind of a, uh, a sign. Here we see him driving out falsehood, which is really what his ministry is about, isn't it? Cleansing things. He starts his 
ministry by purifying something. And isn't that what he does with his people as well? So the religious ask, what gives you the authority to do this? Because they were used to signs of authority. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days. Now, understandably, they didn't get it. Who would understand that? But Jesus does what he often does, and we will we'll see this in his teaching ministry, is he, he doesn't necessarily answer the question that's asked. He answers the question behind the question. And that's what he deals with here. And at least one of those questions is, what do you think the temple is? Now, they would have answered, well, it's this that took us all this length of time to build. But there were many Jews that didn't understand that, that the temple was not an end in itself. That didn't understand that the temple was to point them to God. And everything in the temple was to point them to a Savior that was coming. And they didn't get that. They didn't understand that. They're saying, uh, you know, look, we've been working on this for 46 years. And just historically, it would be another 37 years before it would be completed. So that's where they were in that process. So that'd be around 63 AD. And then, seven years later, boom. It was destroyed. If ever there was an illustration of the futility of identifying a building with true worship, this is it. The Jews were it. But Christ makes it clear here that old way of thinking that this building is the key that way is passing away. I'm going to tell you what the real temple is. Now, John here basically inserts commentary uh, that only could have uh, been understood after the resurrection of Christ. So here's what he says, uh, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised, 22, raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus, here's what he did. He did rebuild the temple. In 70 AD, the physical temple was destroyed by the, the Romans. And you know what? We Again, we saw this in Israel and there are uh, lots of Christians that are waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. They think that's going to be a sign of the end of the age. What they're missing is this. 
the temple was rebuilt. The real temple is Christ. And when he walked out of the grave, the temple was rebuilt. There is no more need for what that temple held, and that is the, uh, the, for sacrifice that took place. It was completed in Christ on the cross. There is no more need for a place that shows the presence of God because now God shows his presence in his people by his Holy Spirit that dwells in them and we are also the temple as well. So let's take a look at uh, some applications from this account. First of all, uh, you, you, you can't enter into this without uh, coping with and, and trying to grapple with uh, uh, the anger of Jesus. There are those that look at this and uh, they try to justify their own anger. And some might even like to use the phrase, well, my anger is a righteous anger. Let, let me give us some cautions there with that. We need to clarify, first of all, that anger in and of itself is not a sin. We don't have to redefine whether Jesus was angry here or not. We know he didn't sin. This shows us, therefore, that anger in and of itself is not a sin. In fact, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there is a way to be angry but not sin. Jesus did it. We are told we are to do it too. But I want you to be careful because you're not Jesus. And I'm not Jesus. And I'm not sure. I've thought a lot about this this week. I'm not sure I've ever been angry without sinning. Because I know that at best, our motives are mixed. When we're at our best. Now that doesn't mean that the object of my anger might not have been okay. But it's like, if I had gone in and tried to cleanse the temple... I promise you I would have crossed the line into sin. I would have done something else that would have hurt somebody that would have defeated the point of this. Or there would have been some kind of a pride or something in there. And so we've always got to be cautious. You know, if I was cleansing the temple, it would have got personal at some point. Now, notice this about Jesus' anger as well. 
He never got angry because he was falsely accused, which he was many times. He never got angry because his rights were squashed or stepped on. That happened many times. He didn't get angry because he was offended. He got angry when the father was offended. It was when God the Father was diminished or offended, that's when Jesus' anger came out. And that's the nature of a truly righteous anger. Let me give you a second application here. And these are all so related. They're like one big application, but with many, many parts. And that is, Jesus hates fake religion. I, I, I kind of, you know, when I did my outline and so on, and, and I put several things that Jesus hates, I, I didn't like putting all these things he hates. But these are those things that indeed... He does. We see him uh, getting angry here and at the religious people of the day. We see that's when he gets angry when he is confronted with fake religion. When one is presenting themselves as pious and the person either doesn't believe or he somehow diminishes God. We see, for instance, Matthew 23 which, by the way, was in Friday's reading challenge uh, passage. Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're basically dirty cups that are, are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. I, I've used cups like that. I had, I had one of the best cups I ever had was a white plastic cup. And... Uh, the outside looked great if I was doing this, and then when it was done, it had coffee stains all inside. It was disgusting, but it made for good coffee. <laughs> but I, I, I can't even see that without thinking of, of my cup. And then he said, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of dead bones and uncleanness inside. And then he pronounces woes on them. Curses. Jesus hates that kind of fakery. He also hates that which obscures the message of the gospel. That which obscures the message of the gospel. Here's, here's just a few of the things that... Uh, that I, I see churches being in, in danger of. One is leaving the Bible behind. You know, when, when a church, you, you can drive down uh, St. Andrews, and the, this church from the outside looks like many churches along here. But you can walk in some of them, and, and you won't hear the Word of God. Or if you hear it, it's a jumping off point to then 
then uh, talk about uh, psychology or good advice or, or good living or something like that as opposed to seeing what God's Word has. That can diminish the message of the gospel. We can do it also if we, if we don't accept those who are not just like us. If we ever become a church where, where someone who doesn't look like us or have the education we have or uh, be on the same social strata or the, the same color skin or any of those things, if we ever become a church where others are not welcome, we are in this category of diminishing the gospel. Too much focus on buildings. We have a great facility here. A great building. We thoroughly enjoy it. I love seeing uh, people and groups use it virtually every day of the week. But this building should never become the focus of who we are as a church. It's just a tool, a wonderful tool. We've been richly blessed in that way. But it's not who we are. Another area is politics. Churches on both ends of the spectrum, conservative, Bible-believing churches and, and liberal, non-Bible-believing churches, both can fall into uh, that category of diminishing the clarity of the gospel by mixing their politics with the message of the gospel. We must never fall into that trap. And then there's entertainment. When worship and church becomes about entertainment, that obscures who God is and what the message of the gospel is. We're trying to make the message palatable to those who don't believe. Being unwilling to say the hard stuff, we need to remember Jesus said the hard stuff. And if we're going to follow him, we need to follow him in that. We should always be winsome, but never water down the truth of the gospel. Let me give you a fourth application, and that is don't wait on a sign to believe. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're demanding a sign. Uh, it's interesting that after that happened, you know, if it were me and the Jews said, what sign do you have to show us? I think I would have gone, pointing to, you know, the tables, the, you know, there's no animals in here anymore, and did you not see this? That would have been me. But he says there's one sign. And that is my resurrection. He's pointing to that when he talks about the temple being raised in three days. 
Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Don't be someone just waiting on a sign. He has already given the sign. Don't be one that said, if he would just do this in my life, then I would follow him. If he would just heal me or her or him. Don't be that person he has given the ultimate sign. So the question is, in the light of the fact that some believed after the signs, what kind of belief is that? After the signs. Well, that's the, the final application. That is, Jesus knows our heart. We read that earlier. Psalm 139. Verse 24 here. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in Man, So here's the thing. He understood and understands mixed motivations. He knew the fickleness of, of the heart of some of those people that were impressed by him coming in and clearing out the temple might have been some of the same people that were calling for his crucifixion later on. He, he knew their hearts and he knows our hearts. He knows our mixed motives. He knows the fickleness of our hearts. And mine included. So what does he know when he looks at your heart? He knows if you're faking it for the benefit of, of somebody sitting next to you or somebody in this room or, or doing it for, for anybody or to impress somebody. He knows that. You can fool me and you can fool others, but he knows our hearts. He does surgery on us. It's wide open. So what do we do? If we recognize when he looks into my heart, he sees unbelief or he sees a fake religion, what do we do? Well, the answer is we go to this same one who specializes in cleansing the unclean. In cleansing the temple of your heart. It's still Jesus. The scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's still Jesus. Let's bow together. Lord, will you cause your spirit to help us to be 
brutally honest with ourselves and then with you. Thank you that your anger is not at your children. That your wrath was satisfied on the cross. And that for your children, there is grace and mercy. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.